0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about product founder fit, stair-stepping, free trials versus money-back guarantees, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 415. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, a podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products whether you've built your first product, you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. Croatia, sir, when this goes live, you and I are at MicroConf Europe.
1: Yes, that should uh, definitely be fun. Uh, people have asked numerous times, like, "What was it that made you select Croatia?" And it's like, "Well, we've never been there before, and it becomes a business expense." So, <laughs> seems like a good as good a reason as any.
0: And it's reasonably—it's—it's it's hard for us to get to from the states, but it's reasonably easy to get there from within the EU. It's gorgeous. It's where they film a bunch, a lot of Game of Thrones, like the exterior scenes. Obviously, you know we do microconf Europe because we love to see everybody, and it, you know it's fun to to get the people together and, and offer the value that we do through the microconf's, but. We have always been pretty deliberate about where to place it. First couple of years, we're in Prague. And that was actually suggested by, you know, our, our coordinator at the time, Dan Taylor. And it, it turned out really cool because Prague was a fun city to be in. And then next, we picked Barcelona because you and I hadn't been there, you know, and, it's, and people want to go there. And we went to Lisbon last year. And so Croatia is, I think, a nice next step. You know, we've, we've looked at Berlin and Greece and a bunch of other cities, cities and countries. And I think someday we'll, you know, obviously move it to, to another place. But I, for one, am very excited about this. Um, and I'm going there with my family, wife and kids, for like two and a half weeks. So we'll be in Dubrovnik itself for about a week, but we will be surrounding cities kind of exploring because I don't know if you've looked at, at images of Croatia or even just read up on it, but there's a, there's a lot to do there.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I I did look into it a little bit and it's just like, there's way more than you would actually think for like a, a small country like that. And it's just like, it'd just be cool to just hang around. I'm personally looking forward to going around and looking at Dubrovnik itself just to kind of mentally overlap between like the stuff I've seen on Game of Thrones and then like what the actual city looks like. But I did hear that there is a Game of Thrones tour or something like that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping I'll have time to do that, but we'll see.
0: I agree. That's going to be a no brainer for me for sure. So this week we are answering some listener questions that have come in. With this episode, if we get through all of these, I believe that clears out our question queue. So if you have a question for us, you want it answered soon in the next couple of weeks, send it into to us. Email us at questions at startups or, of us.com or call that voicemail number. And as always, voicemails and audio questions go to the top of the queue. So our first question is about how many commitments you need to validate an idea. It's a follow-up question to episode 410. It's from Chris Palmer. And he says, hey, I have a question for you. You say you should find 30 people to validate your idea. I'm working on an enterprise software concept with what I would pitch at an ARR, that's annual run rate or annual cost, of between 10000 and 150000 plus. In other words, roughly based on company population plus paid-for seats. What I want to know, in your opinion, is 30 people or 30 companies still a good target number for validation? I used to work in a team, the company had 80,000 people, and they would use the product. I've spoken to two other companies. One of the people is really interested, is the director of communication Uh, at a a large company, I'm going through my network to speak to more people, cold contacting has not worked. So he kind of has three, sounds like three companies that he's at least in conversation with. So back to the question, given the income per customer, what number should I set? I'm confident with my validation statement and the concepts possible success. Also, just wanted to say thank you for your advice last year regarding a situation I was in. Your advice was super helpful. Thanks, Chris. So what do you think, Mike?
1: Uh, So this is a, I don't want to call it an edge case, but this is one of those situations where there's general guidelines and uh, that you can follow. And then there's cases like this where things fall so far out of the, what is normal in those situations that they don't tend to apply. So like, you know, most of the guidance that I've talked about in terms of like how many people should you really talk to, it kind of assumes that like people are paying a, a reasonably low monthly rate for it. Enterprise sales are very, very different, and Depending on who it is that you're selling inside the company, it's going to be a very different sale. So if you're selling to the IT director, it's a different sale than if you were selling to like the marketing director, because the marketing director is only concerned about their own team versus if you're selling to the IT director, you have to convince them not just that it is good for their team, but also probably for the entire company to use. And that's what it sounds like this situation is, because it's based on company population versus like the size of the IT team.
0: That's why I'm glad he sent this in because it is, it makes you and I, it it makes me like kind of question assumptions that we might have when we kind of call out rules of thumb, right? It's like, there's always going to be an edge case with a rule of thumb and it's neat when we can hear about one and then actually talk about, well, this is how we would, you know, think through that.
1: Right. And I think that in this case, it sounds to me like the product is aimed at the entire company. I don't want to use WinZip as an example, but I'm going to like WinZip is typically installed on every computer in most organizations, just because not most organizations, but like the people who have it, they're going to install it everywhere. You're not going to buy it for like just one team, for example, because it's going to be used by pretty much the entire organization. And if you're licensing like that, then it is a much more difficult sale. Because you have to convince them not only that you can deliver on whatever the promises are, but there's value there for everybody. And they're going to be able to get around the training issues and any support problems, those are all going to need to be taken care of. And they're going to want to probably test it inside of their environment. In addition, you know, you had mentioned that you used to work on a team of, and a company of 80,000 people. And when you have software like that, that gets installed and deployed across the entire environment, what you end up with is like every single day of the week, there are people whose hard drives fail and they need to have either the hard drive replaced or the machine replaced and they're re-imaging machines left and right. So you have to be able to deploy that software in some way. Now, if that software can be remotely pushed, great. Otherwise, it needs to be embedded into the software image. So you also need to figure out, like, how's that licensing stuff going to work? Back to your question about how to how many people you need to validate it, it depends on how many, like, how much money do you need? I would think that you'd want to get commitments from enough companies that you're going to be able to basically do this full time, because I think it's going to be hard to do it part time, especially when you're trying to make commitments to an enterprise company. And if you're trying to roll it out to your entire organization, sight unseen, like I don't know how you would get the commitment from them to buy it or maybe even an upfront payment for it without having something you can actually deliver to them. I feel like there's there's a lot of landmines here. And it's it's just gonna be hard. I mean, Rob, why don't you chime in here? Cause maybe we can bat some ideas around for that.
0: Yeah, this this is a tough one. I mean, to be honest, you know, I, I don't know if Chris is a single founder. I'm gonna assume he's bootstrapping and either single or maybe has one, you know, co-founder. It's really, really hard to to sell into the enterprise. You experienced this with Audit Shark, right? It was it's a lot of work, it's long lead time, and you kind of live or die by two customers or three customers. Because, you know, again, if you're going to sell it for 100K for an annual license, you only need one or two of those to go full time on it. But landing one or two can take you a year or two years of just conversations. And so it's really, an it, it's definitely an all or nothing. It's It's riskier than trying to, you know, do this a month thing where you can just cobble people together. Now, it's not, I don't know that it's easier or harder, but I do think that there there is a big barrier if you don't already have that kind of list of logos at your back to show you, hey, this is where we've implemented it. Because enterprises are slow moving and they're not very trusting of new technology in general. And rightfully so, because they've probably been burned by a bunch in the past. So I think that that's a challenge, right? That, that you'll face. So know that going into it, I would, I would recommend against this approach. But with that said, you have an idea and you are talking to three companies. I guess I feel similar to you that if you get yeses from all three, but you need more than just a yes, right? You need some type of written LOI, letter of intent that if you can deliver this, they'll go through with it. Because the problem is, is how long is it going to take you to build this? You can get these verbal commitments and then is it going to take you six months or a year to build it? Are even the same people still going to be in the same roles at that company? Are they going to follow through on this verbal commitment that they forgot about, you know, most likely to pay you $100,000? So that, you know, I, th- I think that's a challenge. How, how does he, how does he overcome that?
1: Well, I mean, you said letter of intent. I think that uh, like an enterprise company is going to shy away from that just because it's going to have to involve like the legal team. I mean, you could ask them for a purchase order. You you can send them an invoice, for example, that can't be paid until 30 days or 60 days after delivery or sign off or something like that. You're going to have to put lines in the sand for you to be able to deliver. And if you can't meet them, then either it gets pushed out or if it gets pushed out too far, then the whole thing is dead. One other thing that I did think of is that you could essentially treat it as like a consulting engagement. Because if you can find enough companies to pay you on a consulting basis to deliver a solution, and it doesn't have to be yours, it can be something that you cobbled together from a bunch of different places. And then you gradually morph it into like your own code and your own full-blown product and then Do you like port all the data over? I would probably approach it from that side of things. Maybe you deliver it as a virtual machine that you give to them and then they can host in their own environment. That's probably more likely to succeed. But again, it's it's a matter of getting them to sign off on, hey, we're going to pay. We know we're going to pay more for this than otherwise. But there's nothing here that says like this is a desktop application or like a, a hosted web app. So I don't know if that would actually be viable.
0: Yeah, I, th- I do like that idea of consulting, actually. That's a nice way to get, you're going to get that revenue up front, the consulting revenue that you're billing, and then be able to build that product. You'll have to write it in that that you own the code and can re- repurpose it to other people. I think with enterprise, that's not a terrible way to go because you're going to be kind of plodding along as you go. Anyways, it's going to take a while to get get these approvals. So yeah, it's certainly not 30. I mean, back to his original question, he said, you say to find 30 people to validate. That is with lower price you know, bootstrap SaaS in mind. This is a different case. And I don't know that I even have, I mean, I could take a guess of like, well, if you get, if you get three commitments or five commitments, that sounds right. But then again, those, just as we've said, those commitments, what are they worth, you know, unless they've signed something. So I I don't even know if verbal commitments from enterprise companies is worth doing. I would venture to say that the approach needs to be something entirely different. And I can, I can see this consulting where idea, like you've kind of called out where, Start consulting with one or two of them, build that out and see if the feature sets overlap. You may get to the point where, you know, enterprise stuff is, is so tough because you can build a feature set and then every enterprise wants something different and they're used to getting customization. So you really are not building a repeatable product. You're kind of building a code base that you then augment and, you know, do custom consulting for each one. I've heard it called consulting wear. So that may be the, the road you're going down here.
1: Yeah. The other th- nice thing that can offering it as consultant where offers you is that it gets you into that enterprise sales process and teaches you how to negotiate it. And you're more likely to get somebody to sign off on consult engagement in an enterprise company than you are to have them purchase a piece of software for every user in the organization when they don't necessarily know for sure if it's going to work out for them or not. But for whatever reason, they're more than willing to pay like large sums of consulting dollars for that kind of stuff. And then based on that, you establish this list of people that you came in and did consulting for, and then you may be able to come back to them later and say, hey, you know, we've left and you're now on your own. Is this working out for you? And it's probably not because most of those consulting engagements, they get done once and then that's it. And then people just let it drop because they've got other priorities. But if there's software in place, it will help them because then they don't have to manually do things.
0: So thanks for the question, Chris. Always good to hear from you. Our next question is about stair-stepping and where to stair-step from where they are. It's from Will Gant. He says, long-time listener, three-time microconf attendee. Trying to figure out how to stair-step my way up out of a current situation. Thought it might be a good question to discuss. A buddy of mine and I have built a podcast, the Complete Developer Podcast, completedeveloperpodcast.com. In the software development space, it's taken us three years. We just got our 250,000th download. We get about 15,000 downloads uh, a month, and we generally get about 2,000 downloads within the first six weeks of an episode release. We also have a meetup group. that gets 10 to 40 attendees once a month. And on meetup.com, the group has about 850 developers in it. It's only in Nashville, but we're considering expanding. We've tried a bunch of ways to monetize this. We've tried sponsorships, but the CPM cost per thousand rates for podcasts are so low, doesn't seem worthwhile. We've tried Patreon, our email list is very small, but we're working on it. We both have full-time jobs. I plan to stay at mine for at least three years, but I'd you know like to consider having something else to transition to if if it comes time to move along. We're in the process of putting together an audiobook that will sell under the podcast brand. I've personally written a small ebook, took a couple weeks to write. We plan to continue podcasting. We're getting everything done with eight to 12 hours of work each week, a piece. So that's 16 to 24 person hours. We could cut some of that by outsourcing and process improvements. So my question is, what's a good next step for stair-stepping from here? I feel like there are four options. First thing, of course, is to build the email list. And then we could, number one, try to ramp up ads, sponsorships. Number two, build affiliate websites and get commissions or do affiliate stuff in the podcast itself. Number three, create digital products like ebooks, video courses, and sell those. Number four, coaching developers on their careers how would you evaluate the above we've been sort of leaning towards products both together and individually given the constraints above if you were me how would you proceed over the next six months thanks this is a big one a lot of a lot of aspects to it a lot of ways to think about it
1: yeah and i think that the fact that he's tried a bunch of different things that gives a little bit more information to work off of so super helpful yeah Yeah. So the four options there, the first one was trying to ramp up on ad sponsorships. And he's already said that that's difficult. And then Patreon has been even less lucrative. And the email list is rather small. So the thing about ad sponsorships is that they are going to scale linearly with your audience. So if the money that you're getting from them now is relatively small, let's say it's a hundredth of what you need, you would need to 100X your traffic basically your audience in order to get that to the level that you need to. So it doesn't sound to me like that is probably going to work out. I would say roughly the same thing with affiliates and getting commissions or, you know, selling uh, affiliate stuff on the podcast, you're going to get some revenue from it, but it's probably only going to be depending on the type of product. It could be anywhere from 15% to 50% of whatever the the product is, but it doesn't seem to me like that is going to like pay the bills either. The third option was uh, creating digital products such as books, video courses, et cetera. And then the, the fourth option was coaching developers. I think if you're going to coach developers, you need to have something very specific that you are coaching them on. And I would question how many of them are going to be able to pay a rate that is going to get you out of the situation that you're in. So individually, they're probably not going to be able to pay more than 100 bucks an hour or 150 You could do some sort of like a group coaching session. I have seen that work out. So my wife joined up with a, a business coach who basically went that route, and instead of coaching people one-on-one, we're coaching them in a group. So that's sort of like a course but not really like you really want to have everybody starting at the same time so you're going to have to find the right people and catch them at the right time in order to coach them on that you're also going to want to say like this is what we are coaching you on so it's whether it's to how to get higher salaries or how to program in this particular language or how to deal with these types of situations you're going to have to really think really really hard about that the third option as you said the digital products seems to me like the better bet i think that there's a lot of opportunities there for books and video courses and tiered info product format. And that provides a significant advantage over doing affiliate stuff where you're only getting a small fraction of it versus, which is split because there's two people in the business versus creating your own digital products. And then you guys get to keep a hundred percent.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I initially read this question, the feeling is 2000 downloads per episode. It, it's obviously a great milestone to reach, but it's not, it really isn't enough to monetize directly. So, you know, if he had written in and said they hadn't tried Patreon or ads, I would have said, don't try them because they're just not, I, I don't think they're going to work. The money is really going to be in the email list. And if you don't have much of a list, I don't know that there is a direct way to monetize this podcast. I mean, you know, you and I have never directly monetized this podcast, right? We've talked recently about doing sponsorships, but you know, we're essentially more than 10 times the size of of their podcast. And one of the reasons we haven't, you know, wanted to do it to date is because we've gone down other roads and, uh, you know, monetized it with mostly MicroConf, right? I mean, that's, and Founder Cafe, that's really what pays our time and, and editing and all that to put the podcast together. You and I have also sold books and stuff independently, but at that size uh, of an audience, I do think, you know, I'm thinking back to Sherry. Sherry started Zen Founder. She, she and I started Zen Founder podcast. And, as it's grown, she did small info products. She did her retreat ebook, The Zen Founder Guide to Founder Retreats. And I don't remember how many copies exactly, but it, you know it's a $20 book and she sold a few hundred copies. And it, it took time to write, as Will said, it took him a couple of weeks to write, but that's not a bad way to go. It, what's nice is that if you release it, you make a few hundred bucks from it, you learn a lot about launching, then you have this thing that's valuable and you can give that away as a lead magnet in the future, You can discount it on Black Friday. I mean, you start building up this portfolio of products. Now, still, with 2,000 downloads, if you don't grow that email list, it's never going to be something huge, right? This is not going to be a full-time living unless you can grow all of that. So I, I think that's the thing to think about is like, is is this space big enough? So we know John Sonmez, right? Who who comes to MicroConf and runs Simple Programmer or used to run simpleprogrammer.com. I know he's, you know, doing a bunch of different stuff now, but he built a big audience. And if I recall, it was through blogging and videos. It wasn't through podcasting. So that either says that the audience isn't there in podcasting, or maybe it's it's still untapped and you haven't hit directly on that value proposition yet. But I'd be curious if how much you've promoted your podcast, like have you gone on kind of every other podcast in the space to be interviewed, not just about your podcast, but just about things, you know, and then then talk about your podcast and how it helps people. You know, what are the other avenues to grow that podcast listener base and then have more calls to action to your email list? Because really the email list is where, if you want to go full time on this, I would not do that without an email list that could support this, which is let's say 10,000 or tens of thousands of subscribers, depending on how much they buy from you and how much, how much content you can put out. So while coaching is a short-term thing, I think it's gonna, again, at this size, it's just so hard to monetize it. You know, it's so hard to get a lot of value out of a couple thousand listeners. So those are my thoughts. You have any other thoughts, Mike?
1: No, I mean, I, I agree with you, like the idea of putting together a small portfolio of digital products that you can offer, and some of them you may relegate to using as a lead magnet later on. That's probably the way to go, because, if you know, as an example, he said that there was one that took him about two weeks or so to put together, and then plus there was editing time after that. So call it six to eight weeks total. I mean, if you each work on one, I mean, you could probably put out, what, five, ten of them per year? That's pretty good. I mean, that seems like that would give you a a fairly significant base to work from. And you could have them about very specific topics. And then, you know, you promote the podcast more and then you maybe talk about them or get them under your email list. But again, you have to grow everything and you have to have products to offer.
0: Right, and the nice part is once you've written that, well, you can then put it on Amazon, you know, as a Kindle ebook and you can even buy ads for that on Amazon now. And there are other ways to, kind of promote it from there. And then you could use that as a way to generate leads and generate, just generate listeners or generate email subscribers. You know, have multiple things out there. So it's a tough problem to have. It's it's hard to to work this much and not have enough of an audience to, to basically make a full-time living. But it's a problem all of us have had at one point or another. So I totally get it. I think the last thing I want to touch on is the 16 to 24 person hours a week um, that you're spending depending on the podcast. You know, in contrast, Mike and I spend, what do we spend, Mike? Do you think, well, between the two of us, it's f- four hours, four person hours every two weeks, you think? Five?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, there's there's the obvious time spent actually recording. Yep. But then beyond that, like, I mean, we've outsourced pretty much everything else.
0: Right. Well, that, that's what I'm saying is, it 's not that expensive to outsource everything else if you get even one of these ebooks that that's selling reasonably well, like you could pay for an editor and our editor posts to WordPress and does you know does all the stuff so it would be you know given that again you and i let's say two and a half hours a week total total person hours versus the the sixteen to twenty four they're spending well, if they could get all that time back, you know it'd be a big deal right they could put that towards doing other things, whether it 's towards growing the list, towards going on other podcasts, towards building these products out. I think that's something to to kind of think about. No, I don't know the format of their podcast. So maybe it's just a lot more labor intensive than ours is, you know, maybe it's scheduling guests and it's doing a bunch of things. But I would guess that a lot of that could still be be outsourceable. Chicken and egg, right?
1: Yeah, it is. And I wonder if there's other options as well. I mean, if you could reclaim eight hours per week, I mean, that's a full day. If you're doing any sort of consulting or other stuff that is able to generate even remotely enough money to cover time or costs or like something else, you could definitely outsource that. I mean, if you did four extra hours of like, let's say you did four hours of consulting work per week, finding that is a completely different topic, but you get paid a hundred dollars an hour for each of those. I mean, if you're each doing that, that's an extra $800 a week, 1600 between the two of you, 6400, it costs a lot less than $6,400 a month to edit a podcast and like And now you're cutting your time in half and you're adding that money in. And I'm not saying consultant is the answer, but there are other ways to get that done. And I would think more consciously about that 8 to 12 hours each that you're spending and how much value you're actually providing. Are there other ways to pay for that is really what it comes down to. And then reclaim that time and use that time to generate revenue as opposed to like do stuff that's essentially a cost sink.
0: So thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is about de-risking product founder fit, and it's from Heather, and she says, my day job is all about finding product market fit, so I can usually figure out a way to test my side project ideas, but I struggle to commit to any because I'm not sure if I'll end up hating the everyday tasks. Do you have any idea for a lean approach for finding product founder fit or to de-risk that side of the equation? It's a good question. We've never had this before.
1: So this is a good question, I, and I actually addressed this to some extent in my book, The Single Founder Handbook, and it's in Chapter 12. It's on idea filtering, and I did not call it this at the time because I don't think I was either really well aware of the term, but it basically talks about that to some extent in terms of filtering out ideas that you've brainstormed and in, in, in trying to figure out whether you should go after one idea or another based on your personality and interests. So I have like these, uh, I laid it out in terms of there's pros and then there's cons and then there's also disqualifiers. And in terms of the disqualifiers, I put things in there like, you know, two-sided markets or difficult customers or indirect revenue streams because it's just difficult to get those businesses off the ground. But there's also the idea that some of your ideas are things that are going to require things of you that you are simply not going to want to do. So for example, when it comes to like enterprise sales, I'm good at it, but I'm not good at finding the enterprise deals to actually then go in and do the the sales stuff. I can do the sales stuff, but I'm not good at all the prospecting stuff. And I hate that stuff. I'm like, there's a difference between being good at it versus not enjoying it. And could I find somebody else and hire them to do that stuff? Sure, I could. Could I do it temporarily? Yeah, I could. But at the same time, I know that I wouldn't want to do that long term or manage that entire process. So I think that I would come up with a, a short list of things that you absolutely under no circumstances ever want to have to do. And those become your list of disqualifiers. And every idea that you come up with, fit them up, up against that list and just kind of uh, you can throw it into a spreadsheet, see if it's going to work for you. And if it's not, then don't do it. You can also test things to some extent and do it a little bit to see if you would be able to do them long-term. And for everyday tasks that you have to do, a lot of them you can outsource, but there are certain ones that you simply can't. Again, for enterprise sales, like that prospecting, you have to be the one to do it initially. And if you hate it that much, the business is never going to work.
0: I like the way you've framed that. I think that's super helpful. I think that's one reason why I have never launched like a super sales intensive application. Is I've just known that I want to. I want it to be low touch or mid touch, you know. And later into the lifecycle, drip became a higher touch app. With these, we, once we started getting these big contracts, you get twenty, thirty, forty grand a year, and you're gonna, you know, end up and you're gonna talk face to face with people. But I always aim for lower touch, and that's because. That's one of my deal breakers is I don't want to be doing, you know, sales in the early days. Later, I can hire people to do that. You know, once we grew to a team, it was fine. But if that's the main driver of sales and you have to do that in the early days, typically it's the founder, you, you want the founder doing that. So I think it's a good framework. What are your deal breakers? What do you like and dislike? This is hard to answer if it's your first project because it's, it's hard to know what you like and dislike. You can take a guess, but the more experience you have, the more you learn about yourself. I would totally go and, and take, you know, StrengthsFinder and maybe even the Enneagram. I mean, you know, these are just kind of personality tests that give you more insight into who you are. And I think those can help, help you determine, you know, some more things about what you're going to like and dislike. But then it's also, like you said, singlefounderhandbook.com, if you want to read that, you know, that section on kind of de-risking it from a product founder fit perspective. I like this question. I actually want to think on it more. I would bet in a future episode it'll come back around and, and we'll have more thoughts. This is one of those that, like on the spot, I don't have the entire framework mapped out, but I know that I'm going to mull on it, you know, while doing dishes and and kind of come back to it. So thanks for the question, Heather. Our next question is a voicemail. And you know what, Mike, this should have been top of the show. I messed up because voicemails typically go to the top of the queue, but I kind of forgot. This is from Tim Bergen. And he called in a couple episodes ago from Brisbane, Australia, and we couldn't hear the audio, and so I did a a call out, and he basically emailed us a very high-quality WAV file. So let's listen to that now. Hi, Mark and Rob. It's Tim Bergen from Brisbane, Australia. My question is around offering a free trial. Is offering a free trial the only recommended next step to bring prospects into the fold, or are
1: there alternatives that you've also seen work? Most discussion that I've read just seems to assume that offering a free trial is a given. The only exception that I've ever heard was Jason Cohen talking about the early days of WP Engine, where he removed the trial for a money-back guarantee. What's your impression of that approach, and are there other options that you've seen too? Look forward to hearing your thoughts. I have tried the money-back guarantee instead of a free trial, and It does work, but the problem that you do run into is that if you're selling, and this is specifically with Bluetick, I saw this, where somebody wanted to sign up and they decided against it because it was going to require a credit card and they didn't want to use their personal credit card, even though there was a money back guarantee, because then afterwards they would have had to go to their boss. And if they liked it, they said, Oh, I need to be reimbursed for this. It was extra paperwork. They didn't want to have to do. So going with the trial route was a better option than the money back guarantee. And again, like who you're selling to is going to make a difference there. If you're selling more to consumers then a money back guarantee is probably going to work better. But if you're selling to somebody who's on a team, then you know they don't want to expend their own social capital in front of the eyes of their boss by signing up with the company credit card when it's something that they don't know if it's going to work so there's there's pluses and minuses of both approaches the other thing that I was actually just talking to my wife about this the other day is that there was a time where money back guarantee was a Fantastic option because you could also just like refund somebody's money. It didn't, didn't cost you anything. Stripe used to like eat those costs, for example, and then they stopped doing that because it just got to be too costly because there were info marketers out there that were selling 1000 $2,000 products. And then they'd have to issue refunds for like 50% of them. So Stripe basically just killed that. And, Depending on how many of those refunds you have to do, it may or may not work. It, you may want to just eat those costs, but you know it may not be viable for you to do. Another option I have seen people try is having like an onboarding fee. So instead of just getting them to just saying, "Hey, here's a free trial" or whatever. Say that there's also an onboarding fee of like three hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or something like that, which it sounds kind of outrageous, like why would you ask somebody to pay more when you're just trying to get them in the door but it's a pre qualification process like you're saying, hey, if somebody's willing to sign up and they're willing to pay this extra seven hundred and fifty dollars to get just onboarded, you know that's a great way to do it just because you're going to filter out the people who aren't necessarily serious about the product
0: so one thing i don't i know that you get a chargeback fee if you're charged back if it's a dispute, but I don't believe there is any expense for refunds unless you have an unusually high refund rate
1: i i I have seen that there were um, i and I could be wrong, I could be misremembering this, but
0: yeah i maybe someone can write in and let us know, but I'm on their pricing page and it's talking about chargebacks, but if the just if a chargeback dispute is in your favor you don't have a fee. If it's a chargeback and you lose it, then it's 15 bucks, which is actually a very, I mean, I've been on services that are 25 or 30 for chargebacks and it doesn't have any, you know, the only articles or mentions I can find on Stripe refunds talk about how the entire fee yeah, and it says right here in the docs, there is no fee to refund a charge. So okay, someone write in, if you know, cause Mike and I, Mike and I have different memory. I and mean, you know, and there's always a chance that this stuff is out of date right that i'm looking at a page that that hasn't been updated and they just changed that but anyways so that's one thing it's kind of beside the point right if it's a couple percent it's not a big deal i don't i don't think that i mean your refund rate will be higher if you do a money back guarantee up front but it's not going to it's not going to bankrupt you as a SaaS app. Your margins are high enough that, that they could handle it even if there, there is a cost. I think the, the, there's, there are a handful of apps that I've seen do the money-back guarantee. WP Engine was one. I remember Plugio, uh, Justin Vincent did that. I believe ConvertKit used to do that. I'm not sure if they still, I, I think they still do. They charge you right up front. There's no trial, you know, and then they have a, a money-back guarantee. There are certainly other apps that do it. I think the the default and the, the normal assumption is to have a free trial rather than money back guarantee for exactly the reason that, that you mentioned, right? Is if you're at a company and you put your own credit card on and then it gets charged, you need to go get reimbursed. It's just it's kind of a hassle. So it's just one more piece of friction. Now, like I said, it really depends on who you're selling to, because if if you're selling to individuals or nascent entrepreneurs or, you know, people who it's like, hey, they're pulling out their personal credit card to buy this and they are convinced that it 's the tool it 's being recommended by some expert they know and they think it's going to help them start their business, then yeah, maybe this isn 't an issue, but if you 're selling b 2 b money back guarantee will be it will be a block a blocker i 'll tell you that right now, even just asking for a credit card up front for a free trial can be a blocker, and you know you you'll get a lot of people who won't who won 't go through with the sign up because of that. so you have to look around i mean there 's a couple things figure out who you 're selling to, and if it truly is businesses. I would shy away from a money back guarantee. Not saying I wouldn't do it, but the fr- the added friction will eliminate, uh, you know, actual prospects who probably would buy from you because it will it can just become a deal breaker for some. I would also look around at competition. And actually, in in Tim's email, he mentions that some of his competitors offer like a one year money back guarantee and a discount for the first year because the churn is very low because the switching costs are high. So that right there tells me, oh, that's interesting. Like could there even be a really limited free plan? You know, much like MailChimp kind of won the ESP space early on because they were the only one that could get a free plan to work. It's risky as a bootstrapper, but if the switching costs are high and you can just get this massive funnel coming in, it there can be value there. But even if you don't do free plan, I would say, I would lean towards as little friction as possible to get someone into that trial because the more people you get in, if the switching costs are high, that's how you're going to build value in your SaaS app. And he says another competitor is actually seen to be free, but then they have back end per transaction charges. So what these competitors have figured out is since churn is low and you know you're all fighting for new customers, the, the least amount of friction up front is the way to go. And so that's where, again, I would personally, as a rule of thumb that could be broken, I would lean away for money-back guarantees and I would look much more at a trial. Then you have to ask yourself, do I do credit card up front or not? And if you don't do credit card up front, you're going to get a lot more people in that trial. Can you convert them? Are they still qualified? You know, this is an experiment I would run. But I, I may start with lower friction given the low churn and the fact that that people don't switch out after they become customers.
1: Just a confirmation on that last piece for, in terms of Stripe. So right on their refunds page, they say there are no fees to refund a charge, but the fees from the original charge are not returned. So whatever the percentage is. And that changed, I think, in 2017 oh. and it's because they can't, they couldn't afford to do that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, it, and which is like 3% plus 29 cents or something? Yeah. Okay. So it could be, it depends, you know, if it's a hundred bucks, you're paying three bucks per, essentially you're eating $3.30 per refund. And with a SaaS app with the margins you have, that's probably trivial, right? So that wouldn't be the reason I wouldn't do it. It would be the other reasons I think I talked about. So awesome. Thank That was a good question. Thanks for the question, Tim.
1: So I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, and Rob will put it to the top of the queue or be fired.
0: next time, yeah.
1: (laughs) Or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestivist.com. Our theme music is Next Start from Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups, and visit startupsforrestivist.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Welcome to today's uh, after episode. Rob was interested in hearing a, about a little anecdote I had from a uh, Dungeons and Dragons episode that I recently ran for my group. So Rob, are you familiar with the fireball spell? Yes. Okay. So when attack, you roll for right? damage. Yep. So when you roll for damage, what do you roll?
0: You roll And when I said it, it was an attack, of course it's an attack, but what I meant is I think you I think you roll the d20 and it's a, an attack against armor class, right? Or is it a save?
1: No, not with a fireball. It's just like they have to make a saving throw.
0: Saving throw versus your spellcasting ability, right?
1: Yes. Okay. But uh, I was talking about the, the damage. damage itself. Yeah,
0: you roll 4d10, I would guess. I don't know it off the top of my head, 4d12.
1: It's, so it's 8d6. 8d6, 4d12,
0: uh, oh, close, yeah.
1: Nope, close. So what I did was uh I was running a group the other night and I made a mistake and I haven't told them and I don't think they listened to the the podcast. You haven't
0: told them? Oh no. I don't know if I'm going to. Oh,
1: well, I the thing is if mistakes are made when we play, I'm just like, "Eh, too late." Like, you know, it it's right there and we can correct it. Fine. But like if it's 20 minutes ago and we've done a bunch of other stuff or like the previous session, yeah, sorry, like it's it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whose favor it was in. But I accidentally rolled the wrong dice. So instead of rolling 8d6, I rolled 8d8, oh. which it sounds non trivial, but when they're only fourth level, you're basically adding like, you know, an extra, easily a point on average to each die. So it was like an extra eight points or so, eight to 10, depending on how bad you roll. And for these four or five fourth level characters, the fireball was dropped right in the middle of them, and I rolled 41 points of damage. Oh yeah so PPK? almost almost they all ran <laughs> one of them got taken out uh, everyone made their saving throw except for the one guy and he just right on the floor
0: Oh! <laughs> uh, if you saving throw, you get half damage is that right yeah okay and they took that oh, as a brutal. warning
1: sign they're just like no nope, yeah. we're out of here
0: <laughs> this is not gonna work yeah oh dude that's a bummer as, as a dungeon master. It's like sometimes you just make this. So did you realize it then after you packed up, you like looked it up and realized you'd misrolled it?
1: Didn't realize it until the next day because I was just like, man, I thought that they should have had like a better chance against yeah. it. And then I realized that like a couple of the dice that came up, there were eights and I'm just like, wait a second. It's 8d6, not 8d8. I'm like oh, oops. <laughs> oh
0: man, That's crazy. Yeah, that's yeah, it happens. I mean, yeah, what are your options? You could say nothing, you could go back and, and t- you know, undo it or whatever. But it's, I don't know, it's a game, man. That's the thing I always think about, you know, it's like, we're doing the best that we can.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. Even if I told them, it would be like, well, nothing really would have changed at that point. It's just, you know, in the exact moment that, that that happened, like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go back and recreate it. They ran off, they took a short rest and now they're ready to go back. And they're actually fired up about it. Cause they're like, Oh, he's used up his fireball. So he's not, he doesn't have that now. So they're actually in a better position now. Cause now they're also all healed up too. So,
0: yeah. So aside from the guy that died, it's kind of a moot point then.
1: Well, he didn't die. Like when you get to zero point, you oh, have to start making dust game Yeah. So See, they like dragged him out. Of
0: and that's, that's the thing. I mean, I, I I love 5e because it's great. I play with my 12-year-old and even now we're doing kind of 5e Star Wars stuff with with the 8-year-olds. And I like it because it is so much less lethal than when when I used to play. Did you play, you know, basic Mm -hmm. and and advanced i mean you lost characters all the time all that it was so lethal and some you know and i understand why people like that model play and i liked it when i was a kid but now that i'm older and i want there to be kind of more more fun and i want my kids to start crying it is it is cool that uh there are some of these it moves faster it's a faster paced game you can cover more in a shorter amount of time but it's definitely a different game than you know first edition or whatever that i played as a kid
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it honestly wouldn't really make any difference at all. So, and as I said, like they're probably in a better position now than they were beforehand. So it doesn't really matter. The downside is that, so there's two things that two other things to note is they had it down to three hit points and that's when they all ran and they didn't realize it so i mean i'm not going to tell them oh it's got three hit points left but they turned and ran when it only had three hit
0: points now he's got now it took a short rest though right so it'll get some hit die back
1: well it'll get you know basically everything back as well because they did the other downside is that they don't know this but if it dies it comes back in an hour anyway (laughs) oh jeez. so that'll be yeah so they can kill it and then it's just like okay well is if they leave the room and come back, or they try to rest in that room, like that's going to be a problem yeah. for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool, man. Well, thanks for sharing.
1: So, anyway, I think we're uh, we're done for the day then. Later on. All right. See ya.